Welcome to Parsha Panorama for Parsha Spiratius. You are with Rabbi Yeshua Shmuel Eisenberg, and we are in the database for a new podcast, uh, courtesy of jewishpodcasts.org. I express my karsatov right now. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And at Parsha Panorama, I don't just give you a few bites on the Parsha, just a few short words to share at the table, but we actually get the panoramic view of the Parsha. We are going to cover all of the topics in the Parsha, and not only see those topics, but we're actually going to explore the unique connections between the topics. We're going to understand the theme of Bereshis, because each Parsha is far greater than the sum of its parts, and so we're going, to, we're going to actually look at both of the parts and the whole together. So with that, we go right into the global aspect of Boratius. What is Boratius as a whole? Well, in order to understand, you have to kind of look at what Boratius encompasses. So one exercise that I like to do when I look at a Parsha, um, I, you, know, you can see this very well if you look at the, the Shavuos Machser in the section of Tikkun Lel Shavuos, which gives you bits and pieces of every single Parsha Right, for those who do Tikkun Lel Shavuos, you see the entire, um, you, or you see at least the beginning and end of each parsha. Some parshios you get more. For example, Parsha Yisro has uh, the Asar Sedibros in it, even though it's in the middle of the parsha. But more or less, each parsha you get the beginning and the end. And if you could see the beginning of the end of the parsha, you can sort of hone in on what's in between, also recognizing what the mark of that parsha is on the larger Torah map. So when you get to Boratius, Boratius obviously starts with creation, but by the time you get to the end of Boratius, we are already looking at destruction. Hashem decides, I'm going to destroy the world. So Hashem sees his creation. He's very excited. He sees that it's good. It's tov. By the end of the parsha, he sees ki rabba ra'asada ma'aret, vayara l'kim, right? God sees that all the evil of man that's on the earth. So it goes from tov to ra. So if we can uh, bunch Boratius up in one summary, we would say that Boratius is the beginning. It's the creation. It's the genesis of all of life. But it's creation before it slowly deteriorates into destruction. That would be the whole of Boratius. Now let's see how we get to all the different parts. And as we go through the parts, we're going to drop the anchor at the end and talk a little bit about some critical thinking questions that we need to consider for the Parsha. So as far as the specific components of Boratius, so each week I'm going to give you a list of the different components. And of course, this is just my way of breaking them up. You might say, to a certain respect, it's arbitrary. The only objective breaks would be the Parsha breaks and the Chlemish itself. But I list them in a way that, for me at least, and hopefully for you as the listener, it'll make sense how to break up each topic. But um, when I say that just so you understand that there are other possible ways you can break up the Parsha if it makes more sense for you. But this is how I put it. I have six sections. Section number one is the section of creation, the seven days of creation, the Shesh Sameyamasa, and then finally Shabbos. Number two is the the parak that begins Eila Toldos, or it's really the, the, the second parak of Bracious begins with Vayichulu, but right after that it says um, So we have the elaboration of the creation of both man and the entire universe. That's the section where Hashem plants Gan Eden, and we hear about um, all of um, the elaborate 
aspects of creation, that Hashem pulls Chava out of Adam, and that Adam names all the animals. But we have that on that section two, the elaboration on creation. Then section three, we have everything that takes place in Gan Eden in what at least the Christians refer to as original sin, but this is the story of the Eitzachayim and really the Eitzadas Tovarah. We don't actually hear so much about the Eitzachayim after it's planted. But the Eitzadas Tovarah um, is the, 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 probably the center of the story, though we find the Eitzachayim again at the end when uh, Hashem has to block it off. But this is the story where the Nachash convinces Chava, who convinces Adam to eat from the tree. Fine. Section 4, we have the story of Cain and Havel with their Karbanos. Hashem accepts Hevel's carbon, he rejects Kain's carbon. And in this section, I also put Kain's legacy, the, the, the seven generations that proceed after him. We have the story of Lemech in there, right? Very interesting story in its own right. The Midrashim have to explain because the, the Psukim are very ambiguous and very obscure. But we have the story of Lemech and his wives, Ada and Sila, different reasons why they might have separated from him and what Lemech is arguing to them. And is Lemech, um, is Lemech uh, saying that he, he's a, is he confessing to having killed someone by mistake or maybe he's saying, I didn't kill someone at all? You find different approaches in the Midrashim between the Midrash Tanachum and the Midrash Reish Rabbah. And you find um, in, in some of the different uh, Rishonim, most of them quote these Midrashim, but you find some other answers about what exactly Lemech's uh, issue was with his wives. But they have their kids, um, Yaval Yuval from Ada, and Sila has Tuval Kayin. And there's the famous Midrash about um, um, Lemech and Tuval Kayin uh, collaboratively by mistake killing Kayin. But anyway, that's the story of Lemech. Then, after that, we have the story, or really lineage, the Sefer Toldos Adam. This is section 5. That's the 10 generations between Adam and Noah. And finally, section 6, we have the prelude to the flood, at least if you look at Art Scroll behind the margin, that's what they call it, the prelude to the flood. This is where in, um, in a culture that's dominated by dominance, by rape, by, by, uh, by what we find in Parshas Noah, it's going to be also robbery. But this, this uh, culture which also, it's an ambiguous story in its own right with a lot of um, explanations in the Midrashim and the Maharshim. But basically, Hashem decides he's going to destroy the world based on this really deteriorated culture and a deteriorated world. And so Hashem is going to put an end to everything. But that is what we get at the end of Horatius. So again, the sections once more. We have number one, the seven days of creation. Number two, the elaboration on creation. Number three, the story in Gan Eden um, with um, the Eitz Hadas. Number four, we have Cain and Havel and then Cain's legacy after Cain kills Havel. Then we have section five, the Sefer Todos Adam. Right, We learned about the, the birth of Adam's children, his other children, or his other child. We have Shays and then Enosh all the way up until Noach. And then we have section six, the prelude to the flood. Okay, now that we got through the topics of Boratius, there are some major questions that, you know, you, don't, you can't really go to sleep um, after, you know, seeing Boratius without resolving these really difficult questions, right? So, and what I'm going to try to do in general with my, with my critical thinking questions is that there's hopefully going to be one theme that ties them all together. And the theme that I would start off with is the theme that God is good, that's what, that's what we learn. That's how we understand God. And in fact, the Mikubalim, um, the Ramchal namely, and others, 
they say that the reason God created the world, right? You, you want to understand creation. We don't. We we're basically first trying to understand God. Meanwhile, why did God create the world? That's the question. It's the you know, it's a, it's a lifelong question. It's the question of of the ages, and we don't really. Um, you know, it's, it's a hard question to answer. We don't know the answer to that question um, offhand usually. Though the answer that we're taught, and this is really from the Nukubalim, is that Hashem, by definition, God is good. And therefore, in order to be good, you have to bestow good. And in order to bestow good, there has to be a recipient of that good. So that's why Hashem created the world. And if you understand that, so maybe we can begin to understand creation, but we hit a wall when we get to the very first narrative of Adam, Chava, and the Nachash. Because, again, the question is, why would God create a tree of knowledge of good and evil in the first place? A tree that's off limits, a tree that you just can't have. What would be the point to that? Uh, it, 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 was he trying to set a trap for Adam? A lot, you know, we, we relate to this and we say that, oh, maybe he was trying to test Adam. So is that it? He's trying to test Adam? Is it some kind of a game? And uh, Hashem wants to make sure that, that Adam's going to listen to him, uh, that he can trust Adam. But again, we're taught the whole reason why God created the world in the first place was so that he could bestow the ultimate good upon his creations. So why would God then, and a good God, put a man through a test which would literally cost him his life? Why not just let the guy be? God, God doesn't need any of this. So, and, and again, and why, why would Hashem do this? Have this tree of knowledge of good and evil. And what exactly is the tree of knowledge of good and evil? It's not, it's not like uh, it's the tree of death, the tree of evil. It's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So what can possibly be wrong with the knowledge of good and evil? Why does God have to you know, create such a tree? And what exactly is the, the nature of the forbiddenness of this tree? What's so bad about it? While we're pondering that question, let's uh, put Hashem on trial once more, if we can call it that. Um, I think there was a... There's a book or a movie, God on Trial. I don't know. But anyway, um, you know, we, we, we do this in trying to understand the Torah. This is not, obviously, obviously this is not Kfira. But anyway, um, while we're pondering that, we, put, we, 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 we question another act of Hashem. Hashem um, was offered two karbanos from Cain and Hevel, or one karban each for each of them, right? So we know that Hashem rejected Cain's karban. And the Pashup shot of the Chumash is that Cain offered it first. And for some reason, there was something that was better about Havel's carbon, or so it seems. So the question is, why did Hashem have to reject Cain's offering in the first place? Was it not God himself who stirred the sibling rivalry between Cain and Havel by merely choosing one over the other? And even if, for whatever reason, Cain's offering was somehow inferior, should it really have been subject to such scrutiny that God would actually go as far as to reject Right, so going thinking back to our previous question, why would a good God reject any voluntary gesture of goodwill from any of his children and create such animus between them? I would add to this question by saying that if you look in Rashi throughout the uh, Berea, throughout my Sabratius, you find, at least in a couple of places, a Rashi in Perak Aleph Pasuk Chavav and Rashi in Perak uh, Beis Pasuk Zayin, Rashi re- refers to this concept of kinah b'ma'asei that Hashem went out of his way to avoid creating envy in, in the system of creation. So that explains, for example, why Adam had to be a composite of both earthly material and spiritual heavenly material, because then there would be an imbalance. So 
Hashem goes through these extra efforts to make sure that there shouldn't be this uh, the, the, this envy in the Maaseberishas, the envy in creation. So that's true. Where has this sensitivity gone in the story of Cain and Hebel? Hashem, on one hand, goes out of his way to to keep the balance, and yet comes to Cain and Hebel, he just picks a carbon over the other. And again, no one's defending Cain. Uh, for, for murdering Hevel. And you, you can't um, overstate and definitely shouldn't understate that, that, that act of evil. I would say in the same breath that no one is, no, no one is uh, justifying the fact that Adam ate from the tree. He shouldn't have done it. But Hashem is like putting these, these traps. He's planting these traps, it seems, against mankind. And then finally, when we get to the end of the parsha, Hashem, the good God who created the world just for the purpose of bestowing good, Hashem says, you know, never mind, I'm just going to destroy everything. That seems very strange. Hashem had to know when he created the world that man wouldn't be perfect. And you might say that, oh, look, look how patient Hashem is being. Hashem, you know, he waited all those generations before destroying the world. But at the end, it seems like Hashem has given up on mankind. Like, it's like oh, that Hashem's patience runs out. What does that even mean? A good God is going to just turn his back on the world, destroy it? Okay, yeah, they sinned. They, they, they weren't good people. Like, they, they pushed up weren't good people. But... You know, is, is there no alternative? Like, why, why would a God, a good God, resort to something like that? So let's try to answer all of our questions. So, although we, you know, we prefaced with the fact that God is good and created the world for the purpose of bestowing good, there, the, this this idea has to be qualified. Right, the Mikubalim, they all say the same idea, and again, I, I, I saw this mainly in the Ramchal and Derech Hashem. There are a couple of prerequisites there um, to having the ultimate good that Hashem wants to bestow on creation. Part of that is that the ultimate good that Hashem wants to bestow, the definition of this ultimate good, is that there has to be, again, this good, and that good can only exist if there exists the possibility of the alternative. There is no ultimate good if there is no bad to counter it. Just like there is really no light if there is no dark. If, you know, if, if everything is good, then there is no good. So there has to be the opposite of good. So that's, that's one thing that you need. But another thing that the ultimate good needs, considering the recipients, right? There is a recipient to the good. So we said there has to be a recipient. That's why God created the world. But it's not enough for God to just bestow this ultimate good upon the recipient because this is what the Mikubalim referred to as Nahama de Kisufa, that there has to be this, uh, um, this ability for man to participate and somehow, quote-unquote, earn, at least give the semblance of an impression that he is earning his reward, he's earning this good. Because Nahama de Kisufa means the bread of embarrassment. It's a shameful handout, something that you did nothing for. If you did nothing, absolutely nothing to earn it, that intrinsically, definitionally, takes away from the ultimate good. The ultimate good has to be something that you are a participant in. You know, if you think about, you know, you know just uh, the idea of a relationship, right? If one person is giving entirely to the relationship and the other person is only a recipient and there isn't, you know, that, that dual participation, so the, that there is no ultimate good in that relationship. There is something that is missing. So that's where man's free choice comes in. So just to review just a little bit what we just said now, because there's some complicated concepts, the ultimate good requires the possibility of the opposite, 
right? This I would refer to in the, the Kabbalistic term also as tzimtzum, that Hashem, you know, Hashem is presence is everywhere. It, it overwhelms everything. There's no, like, there's, there's no scientific way to explain how Hashem can remove himself and create a void where there is bad, where there is negative, because Hashem is all good. But that's, that's what Hashem had to do to create the world. He created an absence, a lack. There's, so there's a there's, there's place where there's divine presence, there's good, and then there's the void where there is bad. Hashem created the possibility for the alternative. But then Hashem also had to create the ability for man to participate so he wouldn't be receiving Nama de Kisufa. This is the basis for Bechir Echafshis, for free choice. And that is the, the, the first step to understanding this is the test of the tree of knowledge, right? We were asking before, what is so bad about knowledge of good and evil? It's not a matter of what, of what is bad about good and evil, but it's, it's the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil represents the idea of independent thought and subjective thought, the ability to make your own choices. And if man would forego that and withhold that, similar to the way Hashem withholds his, his own presence through tzimtzum, through that, that gevura, um, that, that midah of withholding himself, so by holding back, man can actually subject himself to divine will, and that, that first choice would be the choice ultimately to just have good. Once man ate from the tree, so things got a little bit more difficult, because now he made a choice to make independent decisions um, that, that were independent of God, again, his will, and that, 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 that will get us to the subsequent generations and, and what exactly failed. But in the meantime... Think about this. A good God, in order for there to be this ultimate good, there had to be a tree of knowledge of good and evil. There had to be a basis for man to choose, do I want this, or do, do I want the ultimate good, or will I choose the alternative? And it was only by an act of man, not an act of God, that bad would be received, that, you know, that, that there would be the possibility of such evil, such harm. Right. God had to create a price there, this, that there wouldn't be nama de kisufa. He had to create a price so that we can earn that ultimate good. And the price wasn't so high, just don't eat from the tree. But the cost, the cost of eating from the tree was very high. Why did that have to be so high? Because just as we said earlier, the ultimate good, by definition, needs to have a counterpart, the ultimate bad. So as rewarding and as 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 uh, as rich as the reward of ultimate good is that, that so so had to be the price of the alternative of the the, the 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 cost of the the negative the negative evil the ultimate bad death this had this had this had to be part of it and man uh, chose to eat from the tree so this brings us all the way back to Cain and Hevel now Cain and Hevel Hashem has the choice to accept a carbon. No, no one's sinning here yet. You know, everyone's just offering carbonos, a gesture that they want. I want to give to God. So, when we when we when we, when we come across Cain and Hevel, we're bothered by what looks like an obvious, obvious parenting mistake, if we can call it that. Right? This is like this. This is like fundamental, just to basic parenthood. You never choose a favorite, and that's literally what it looks like God has done creating what looks like one of the things that is antithetical to Hashem's plan in Bereshus. So uh, how, how exactly are we supposed to understand that? And the, again, again, this is the good God who wants to give us opportunity to succeed and earn the ultimate good. So you don't have to look further than the story itself to understand 
how the, the, the view that God made a parenting mistake is really infantile. It's a juvenile way to read the story. The story itself attests to the fact that this is not exactly what happened. And the Mepharshim, they, they, they elaborate on how this is the case. But to just get the basics, God did not choose Hevel over Cain. It was not an exchange, Hevel or Cain. Hashem obviously could have accepted both Karbonos. You know, in God's, in God's world, despite the claim that the Midrash says in the name of the moon that two kings cannot share the same crown, Hashem could have accepted both Karbonos from Cain and Hevel. The fact that he picked one and not the other was only, I would refer to it now as incidental. It was incidental that Hashem accepted Hevel's carbon and did not accept Cain's carbon. But again, it wasn't that Hashem chose Hevel for Cain, Hevel over Cain. He, or, or I should say that it's not that Hashem rejected Cain for Hevel. He rejected Cain for Cain. Right, the, 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 the Midrashim explain, it's, 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 it reads right into the Pesukim that Hevel gave the best that he had to offer um, the choicest of his flocks, whereas Cain gave Mipri, right, it's one letter, the letter Mem, Mipri, from the fruits, just any old fruits. And when Hashem speaks to Cain, this becomes very, very clear. He says to Cain, Hello, he says, he says Lama alach, lama Why is your face fallen? He says, If you're doing well, right, Tetiv, to choose good, that Lushan of Tov keeps coming back, that Hashem is the ultimate good. That is what creation is, it's the ultimate good. If you are doing well, if you are doing what we call to be good, then you will succeed. Your face doesn't have to stay fallen. You 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 will you will soar. And if not, you know, there's the alternative. Hashem reminds us of the alternative. There's always an alternative. He said, he warns Kai, don't choose the alternative. But notice one thing that does not come up in Hashem's speech to Cain. That is Brother Hevel. At no point does Hashem mention the name of Hevel in this speech. And that is because Hevel's carbon had nothing to do with Cain's carbon. And Cain should have never seen it that way. What emerges is that the only imbalance, the kinah, that, we, that we're finding in this story is not ma- God-made, it's man-made. It's an, it's an illusion, it's a man-made illusion, a man-made comparison between Cain and Hevel, that Cain made this comparison. God didn't make this comparison. And just like we find by Adam, it wasn't the act of God that was the, where, where the, the evil was manifest, it was the act of man. And with Cain and Hevel, that's exactly what it was. It was an act of man that made that marked the difference between Cain and Hevel, the kinna that we find in this story. Right? So, the, and really what, what emerges is the, the only difference between Cain and Hevel was a difference in their own actions, their own choices, how they were going to bring Carbonos. And, and we're not saying that it was not a good gesture by Cain, but it could have been a better gesture. And Hashem says, you know, you could do better. And Cain completely, um, you know, shuts out this message when he preoccupies himself once again with Hevel, and he goes to kill Hevel. You know, you could only do that if you completely decided to ignore what God said. And again, the good God put them, you know, there, there, was, there was no honor or, or success that Hevel was able to achieve that Cain could not also achieve himself. So the bad you find in the story is not God-made, it is man-made. Now, we get to the end of Beratius. The end of Beratius, Parshish Beratius, Hashem sees the world, and it's not the good world that he created. 
it's uh it's the it's the bad world that once again man has destroyed right we know that Parshas Noah Hashem is about to destroy the world but it wasn't Hashem who destroyed the world it was man and the Pasuk says that Hashem sees that the, the plans of man are rock rock the plans and actions of man are only evil or all day why is this significant? because we go back to how we define the ultimate good that Hashem wants to bestow on mankind that ultimate good that Hashem wants to bestow on mankind relies on man's ability to choose it and if God saw that at man's current state, man was not going to be choosing good, the whole purpose of creation was effectively defeated. Because again, man's not choosing good. What's the point in leaving the world as is for there just to be suffering, just to be murder, rape, and the ultimate bad? So we might say that God decided to put the world out of its misery. But... Hashem is going to try to start again from Noah. And what we have to wonder is if Hashem decides that he's going to destroy the world because man had just, you know, gotten so bad. So why ultimately at the end of the flood does Hashem say, I'm never going to do this again? Why does Hashem say that this is never going to happen in the future? What changes? Does man suddenly become ultimate good? Does man choose the ultimate good? We find that it still takes a number of generations before we even get to the, you know, to the really good nation that is Klal Yisrael. And you look around in the world today, it doesn't look like everyone is choosing good. So why exactly does Hashem change his mind later, if nothing really changed? So for that, you'll have to tune in to Parsha Panorama for Parsha Snoach. Anyway, hope everyone's doing well. Have a wonderful week. Thank you for tuning into the database, and we'll see you next time.